0: As we kind of begin our last session uh, tonight, um, in some ways, um, the Bible has a theme. The big picture narrative of the Bible has a theme. And maybe the way that I would say that to you is that the theme of the Bible is redemption togetherness. And by that, I mean the theme of the Bible is how God brings uh, man, uh, us, to himself. He brings the two uh, together through redemption. And the Old Testament tells that story pointing towards Jesus and the New Testament recounts the story in a lot of ways of Jesus about how God brings those two together. And so what we've kind of emphasized is looking at that from an Old Testament perspective, kind of working through some very familiar, for the most part, uh, characters in the Old Testament. And so we're going to kind of land tonight uh, a little bit later in the Old Testament on one of the characters that maybe is a little bit lesser known, uh, a guy named Amos. Amos. So if you have a copy of the scriptures and you want to turn there, you can turn to Amos. And um, some of you are going to look at me and be like, where's Amos? I don't know where I know. Amos is in there. And just go to Obadiah. He's right beside Obadiah. I'm sure that's helpful, right? I'm sure that was helpful for you. Um, one of my friends says that his, uh, one of his greatest fears is that he's going to get to heaven. He's going to run into this guy, and the guy's going to say, hey, my name's Obadiah. What would you think of my book? Right? So we all kind of feel that. We don't read through the minor prophets uh, as much. Um, But tonight, we're going to take just a look at uh, a snippet of the life of this guy, Amos. So Amos chapter 1, verse 1 says this. uh, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of... Uzziah, the king. Now, one of the things that you learn real quick about Amos is that Amos is not a professional prophet. That's not his job. He describes himself not as a prophet, but he says, hey, I'm a shepherd. But he does say, uh, he gives us kind of a clue. He says he's a shepherd in the days of Uzziah, the king of Israel. And what we know about the days of Uzziah was um, things were a little bit different. Syria up north of Israel was struggling. Uh, Egypt, for the first time in a couple of centuries, south of Israel was struggling. So because um, their their enemies to the north and the south were struggling, Israel actually is doing really well during this time. Um, uh, Their economy begins to thrive for the first time in in years, and so they're kind of in this bull market economy there in Israel. And so what happens uh, during King Uzziah's reign is that all of a sudden, for the first time in centuries, People in Israel, um, you kind of develop some haves and some have-nots, and what happens is that the haves, um, they, because they've been impoverished so long, when they start to have, they want more, and they want more, and they want more, and in the process of doing that, um, they begin to, um, they begin to, they begin to hurt their own people. So what they would do is. Um, they would take the basic necessities of life, uh, food, shelter, clothes, things like that, and, um, and, and they would buy and they would sell, and they would get more and they would get more and they would get more. And then what they would do is they would turn around and, o- and overprice those things to their own people. And because of that, they would indebt people to themselves. So you've kind of got, again, these haves and these have-nots in, in, in the culture. And so when folks couldn't pay, um, uh, again, their own countrymen, um, when they couldn't pay, So they would take their land. And when they still couldn't pay, then they would take their children from them. And they would sell their own countrymen. They would sell those folks. They would sell their children into slavery to get more. So um, all of a sudden, in the midst of prosperity, people begin to take advantage of other people inside the context of their culture. So here's kind of the message that God delivers to them. Uh, through the prophet Amos in chapter uh, 4, verse 1, and then we're going to kind of piece that together with a part of the message from chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. Amos says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, saying... When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale that we may make an ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. There you see how they're cheating uh, their fellow countrymen that we may buy the poor. They're buying and selling people that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell, uh, sell the chaff. For wheat. So the first thing that you notice is that the prophets, uh, they lacked tact. Um, you noticed uh, Amos's approach. He says, hear the word of Israel, O you cows of Bashan. Now, the cows of Bashan were the fattest cows in all of the country. They were the healthiest, fattest cows. And what's a cow? In a lot of ways, my, my dad owns a few head of cattle, but in some ways, what is a cow? A cow is a walking appetite, right? Nothing is ever enough. A cow eats and eats and eats and, and just never, never stops. And so Amos looks at the people delivering God's message and he says, Listen, you bunch of fat cows. XO, 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 you know, LOL, right? You know, hey. And he says to them, You're nothing but a bunch of walking appetites. And you're enslaving one another and you're buying and selling uh, your your own people. He says, here's what's going on. You're coming to to the grain festivals and to the new moon festivals. And he says... Listen, you're not fooling God. You're kneeling on the outside when it's time to pray, but on the inside, what's going on? He says, God knows. On the inside, all you're doing is thinking about how soon can we get out of church? How soon can we get out of this festival? How soon can we get out of this service so we can go out and we can buy and we can sell and we can deal deceitfully, we can sell people so that we can get new shoes a new pair of sandals so that we can move people along so that we can get more and more and more. He says, you're nothing but a walking appetite. God has blessed you And instead of turning around, like we've already talked about, being a blessing to others, you're enslaving others. You're buying and selling your own own people. So, Amos says there is a consequence for that. Chapter 1, verse 15, he announces this is the consequence. And their king shall go into exile. He and his princes together, says the Lord. That's kind of a weird word, the word exile, the way it's, it's used. So I want you to remember that word because we're going to talk about it. So say it with me on three. Ready? One, two, three, exile. Let's try it one more time. One, two, three, exile. So the exile is not a crisis in Israel's history. It is the crisis in the history of Israel. And what happens uh, in, in the exile is that this other nation rises to power, the nation of Babylon. And typically, pastors, preachers, when you hear about Babylon, they're very critical of Babylon. And, and as well, we should be. They were, they were brutal and they were ruthless at times. But at least when they initially dealt with the people of Israel, um, they, they kind of tried, uh, in a weird way, they kind of tried to work things out. They, um, they, they came in. They found a puppet king. They established a puppet king and put him over Israel, a guy named Zedekiah. And they said, listen, you're one of the, the people of Israel, so you rule them. You listen to us. He was, you know, like he was a parrot king. But they said, you listen to us. You rule the people, and we'll, we'll make it work. And Zedekiah, he does that for a while. And after a while, Zedekiah gets a little bit too big for his britches, and he thinks that, you know, he's going to stand up to Babylon. So he decides to rebel. And Babylon comes in and they besiege Jerusalem and they overthrow uh, Zedekiah and they overthrow his little mini regime that he had put together. And, And Zedekiah had 10 sons. And so here's how Babylon deals with Zedekiah. They roll out all of his 10 sons, put them right in front of him. And Babylon, they murder all 10 sons one at a time, right in front of Zedekiah. And then they take a hot piece of iron And they poke both of his eyes out, so that the last thing Zedekiah ever sees is the death of all ten of his sons. To know that he has no line anymore on the throne. And then what Babylon does is they said, "Listen, we're done. We're done with this process. We're done with this thing where we're trying to help and you know let you people stay here. It's we're, we're taking you." And that's what they do. And that's the exile. And here's how the exile worked. Here's the Bible's description of what happens in the exile, Second Kings uh, chapter 2. Here's how the Bible describes it. And he, he being the leader of Babylon, and he carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, all the craftsmen and the smiths, and none remained except the poorest people, uh, uh, the poorest people of the land. So the irony, obviously, is that Babylon comes in, they take all the leaders, they take all the sharp, what they think are the sharp people, all the financial minds, all the people who are living in prosperity. So the people from Israel, right, who were exploiting their own brothers and sisters, the people who were enslaving and buying and selling their own countrymen, when it comes to the exile, those are the people who get exploited. The leaders who were exploiting people are the ones that Babylon takes away and makes them. They were enslaving their own brothers. Those are the ones who get enslaved and they're taken away in the exile. So they're taken away to Babylon. They're treated like slaves. And not just in their life, but certainly in our lives as well. When, when moments of exile come along, um, an exile seems like an end, but in a lot of ways, an exile is a moment of new beginning. It's sometimes an exile seems like a dead end. There's no hope, there's despair, there's no way around it. But God uses it to create a new beginning in our lives. Um, I listened to a Christian psychologist talk about a shift that occurred in our country about 50 years ago. When you talk about as a parent, when you talk about uh, parental discipline. Up until that point, till about 50 or so years ago, corporal punishment um, was really the, the main form of parental discipline. But about 50 years ago, a new means of, uh, of discipline kind of came onto the scene in America. And the new means of discipline for your kids, no longer necessarily corporal uh, punishment, but what's it called? Time out, exactly right. So, we wanted to change how we began to discipline our kids. And so, we thought about time out. So, time out, you take a chair, you sit the child down in the chair, and you want the child to sit there and kind of Kind of think it through. I don't know about you, but growing up as a kid, my dad and mom—they weren't—they didn't get along with that. I don't that new form of discipline. I would have loved time out whenever I was a kid, right? Whenever whenever I got in trouble. But today there is another shift that's kind of occurring in discipline in our uh, in our country, because um, as as parents grow up, they're kind of uh, concerned that time out uh, may have negative consequences that are too strong for our kids. And so even timeout is beginning to kind of uh, change and shift. And you can see it in uh, the fact that there are now timeout chairs for sale. You can buy a timeout chair. And I've got some pictures of them that I'll show you. Um, I'll throw up uh, the first one of those uh, pictures. Um, there you go. I don't, I don't know if, if, you can, uh, if you can read that. Um, let me see. I think I wrote it down here in the note. I think it says, uh, t- Time to think about the things that you do, but always remember that I love you. <laughs> want to make time out nice and sweet, right? We want to make it as good as we, as good as we can. Um, I'll show you a, a, another one that you can buy off Amazon. Uh, this is less of a timeout chair and more of a timeout throne, Right? <laughs> that your child gets to go sit in whenever it's time for them to experience discipline. And I, I think whoever sits in that throne is probably the one who's in charge, right? I think that, we, that, that you can sit. Um, I'll show you a third one. This one's my favorite. You do the crime, you do the time. I like, I like that third one. The, the purpose of time out is what? Is that you wanna take your child, you wanna put them in a chair, and you wanna give them the time and the space to reflect on what they've done in hopes that what? That they will change their behavior. The exile, in some ways, is very similar to that. The children of Israel are taken into a different country. They're put in a different situation, put in a different circumstance. And I would say from God's perspective, part of the process of that was that hopefully they would reflect on how they've lived, how they've fallen into patterns of idolatry, how they've let other things rule their lives instead of allowing God to rule their lives, and that hopefully they would reflect on that, repent, turn back to God, and change their behavior. But again, I want to say to you that an exile is not necessarily an end but a new beginning. So maybe you're here tonight and maybe you're, uh, maybe, maybe, you're, maybe you're single and you would love to be married. You'd love to move on in your life, take that next step, and you're frustrated by that. But maybe this period, this time in your life is such that what God is doing is that God is shaving off some of the rough edges of your spiritual life to prepare you for a lifetime of marriage, cultural statistics say 90% of us uh, w- will take that step at some point in our lives. So maybe what God's doing is he's, he's taking off the rough edges and preparing you during this time. Maybe exile is not the end. Maybe it's a preparation time for something that's new, a new beginning. Or maybe you're here and maybe you jumped into uh, a business venture and it was like, I can't miss, no doubt about it. We're going to get together and this is going to create like passive streams of income uh, for us for the rest of our lives. And and it fell apart. And you kind of lost your shirt in this deal. And you think, man, what, what am I going to do? And maybe I would say to you, maybe this is not the end, but maybe rather God's going to use this in your life to create a new beginning, to teach you something about himself, time for you to reflect on you and your heart and what God's doing around you. Maybe, uh, maybe you're going through a difficult situation uh, with a child. And maybe it feels like exile to you and it feels lonely and it kind of feels despair. But maybe what God could be doing in you is he's trying to create some healthy self-differentiation between you and, and your child. To understand that your child's success and your success are not the same thing. That the reason that God has given us children, they're not our kids, they're his kids. He just puts them in our hands to raise up and point back to him and let them go. And that means at times they're going to make some of the same mistakes that we did. They're going to, come, they're going to commit some of the same sins that we did. As much as we don't want that and we don't see that and we don't, we're, not, we're not for it. But sometimes what happens is we live so close to our kids that how they do is how we feel we do. And we forget that they're not ours. They're his. Or maybe you're here and you're going through a tough stretch in your marriage and there's some, there's some dissonance there and there's some, there's some friction that's, that's going on in that space. I can't tell you how many times in ministry I've had uh, men who have come to me after a difficult stretch in their marriage and they've said something along the lines of, you know, I can't believe, I can't believe how long in my marriage I, I thought that I was loving my wife, but what I was really doing was I was just manipulating my wife or trying to manipulate my wife to get her to do what I wanted her to do to make me happy. But I wasn't loving her. And in those moments, the exile feels like the end, but the exile is really kind of a window, if you will. It's a new beginning. It's a new way for you to learn, feel, think, understand God's perspective on your heart and your life. And so what happens is that the exile becomes a new beginning. Think about it from this perspective. In the New Testament, God gives birth to the church. And when he gives birth to the church, uh, one of the leaders is the Apostle Paul. Paul is launched throughout Asia. And when he goes into Asia and he plants churches, you read through the book of Acts, where does he go? Most of the time, not all the time, but he goes to cities. And when he goes to cities, where does he go in the city? He goes to the synagogue, right? He goes to the synagogue, he begins to teach there. Where do those synagogues come from? You ever think about that? Where do these little pockets of Jewish people throughout Asia Minor come from? How did Jewish people get there? These are the leftover people from the exile in the Old Testament. These are the people that gathered in pockets in these places all over Asia Minor that were spread through the exile. So in reality, the exile was not just punitive, the exile was God's plan. It was God's plan to spread the gospel throughout. The exile was God's secret weapon, if you can say that, to grow the kingdom long before it ever came to be in the New Testament. It wasn't the end as much as it was a beginning. So what these exile moments teach us, they teach you, they teach me, um, they teach us about the difference between our, uh, the need that we have between hypocrisy and integrity. Hi- hypocrisy means that I uh, try to um, teach others that I am something that I'm not. That's really what, what hypocrisy, uh, what it is. There's a, a guy named Stephen Nordby. He's a uh, a reporter, a writer, author, he kind of piecemeals a lot of work. And um, a few years ago, he went to a convention of heart doctors, about 3,000 or so of them, uh, heart doctors, researchers, people that are concerned about the prevalence of heart disease uh, in the U.S. and its progression and the fact that it's kind of getting worse. And they kind of got together as a, as a way to start to think about how can, we, um, how can we contribute some research together and work together to try and create a, a consistent plan to try and slow down the effects of heart disease in the country. So he was there writing a story on it for a national paper. I think he was there for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, if I'm not mistaken, and he was going to write an article. Well, one of the things that Nordby noticed is that during the meetings as he's attending, like I said, there about 3,000 or so doctors and researchers there, he noticed that the lunch menu consisted of bacon cheeseburgers and chili cheese fries. And he's like... So he pulls one of these doctors aside as he's doing his report, and he kind of got to... a point with this one particular physician where he felt comfortable. And he said, hey, can I just ask you a question? He said, does it seem like any, like a contradiction to you that you guys are here talking about how to help people change their diets and their patterns of eating? Um, does it seem like a contradiction at all that you guys are eating bacon cheeseburgers and chili cheese fries? Like that maybe the the example, that maybe you're setting a poor example for people about how you eat, but in, you know, in terms of the message that you're trying to, to share with people? And the doctor's response was he was like, no, before I ate, I took my name tag off. That was his answer. That was a, no, it's not a contradiction at all. I'm not a bad example at all because I just I took my name tag off. And I think for us, there are a lot of times there are certain parts of Christianity that we just want to take our name tag off. And we say, you know what, I like this and I'll, I'll, I'll wear the label, I'll wear the name tag as long as it's here and here and the easier part. But when Christianity starts to get a little tough, and it starts to require some change on my part, the easy thing to do is just to is just pull the name tag off and say, no, that part, that that part doesn't really, that part doesn't really fit me. So when I hear things like, well, Dean, the reason I don't go to church, or the reason I'm not involved, or the reason I don't serve, is the church is full of hypocrites. Yes. It's true. The church should be the perfect place for imperfect people. And that's all of us. If I could say it to you this way, we all have a little bit of Bashan, right? We all have a little bit of Baishan that works on the inside of us. There's, all, there, there's a little bit of hypocrisy. on the, man, We wouldn't understand hypocrisy if it hadn't been for Jesus, by the way. Jesus uses the word hypocrite or hypocrisy 17 times throughout the Gospels. It was the name of a Greek acting troop. We wouldn't even have a definition of or for the word if it were not for Jesus. So absolutely, um, the church is not gonna be perfect because you're in it, right? Right, because I'm in it, because we're not perfect. At the same time, it's the vehicle that God has anointed that he will use to reach the world and to make a difference in the world. So for you and I, as we think about this whole um, idea of hypocrisy uh, and integrity, for us it means the difference of understanding Uh, uh, conviction and opinion. And when we think about that, so an opinion, and we all have them, right? We have political opinions. We have opinions about family and parenting and other issues that affect us locally. Opinions are something that you hold. Convictions are things that hold you. And what you and I need when it comes to this reality of Christianity that we all say that we are part of, right? If you say you are in Christ, is you need convictions. You need something that holds, not something that you can say, well, yeah, some of this, not so much of this, some of this, not so much. That's where you and I begin to struggle with hypocrisy. Because we begin to apply things to other people that we don't tend to apply to ourselves. And so what happens in hypocrisy is that it ends up being there are two yous. If I can say it to you that way. There's the public you, and there's the private you. And when the gap grows between the public you and the private you, the greater your struggle with the issue of hypocrisy. It is possible because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross for those two people to be the same that there's not a difference between the public you and the private you, between the one you present to other people, and the reason that we do that is we live for the approval and the attention of other people at times, and we live for the power that it gives us to have influence or perceived influence um, over other people. It is possible for you and I to die to our need for the approval of other people and the misuse of power that we use to try and manipulate um, other people. One of my favorite stories uh, about the misuse of, of power comes from uh, the life of Richard Daly. I don't know if you know Richard Daly, the former mayor of Chicago for a number uh, of years. And so Richard Daly, um, if you know anything about his life, um, you know he was a phenomenal orator. He was a fantastic Public speaker. And so one time, uh, one of Richard Daly's uh, speechwriters came to him and said, You know, Mayor Daly, um, I need a raise. I'm not earning enough uh, to live. And his direct quote from Richard Daly to his speechwriter was Listen, I'm not paying you more. It should be enough that you get to work for a great American hero like me. That's what he said to the speechwriter. Now, Daly was famous that he was such a good orator that he didn't read his speeches before he gave them. A speechwriter would write a speech, hand it to him, he would stand up, and deliver it. And it was, it was great. I mean, it was flawless the way that, that he could do it. So um, one particular day it was Veterans Day. So they marched in some veterans and uh, they brought, because it was him, there was going to be some national media attention that they were there. And so the speech was given to him and Daly stands up uh, to give the speech. And in the speech, he gets real impassioned. And the the, the writer who, who had written the speech, you know, he, he wrote some stuff in there that just you know, really kind of stoked daily, and it kind of stoked the crowd. And he said, you know, nowadays, everybody's forgot about the veterans. He said, everybody forgets about the veterans. But he said, I want you to know, I have not forgotten about the veterans. And he's looking down and he's reading his speech. And he said, so today I'm announcing a 17-point plan that requires the coordination of a federal, state, and local government to better serve our veterans. And whenever he said that, Well, the veterans in the room kind of sat up on the edge of their seat. And the media in the room kind of sat up on the edge of their seat. They're like a 17-point plan that's gonna require the coordination of federal, state, and local government. Richard Daly was anxious to hear about this plan as well because he had never heard of a 17-point plan that had been created. And he turns the next page in his speech and what's written on the next page says, you're on your own now, you great American hero. And that's all it says. (laughs) And you know, you and I, we hear stories, right, like that, and we're like, "He deserves that, right? He he would manipulate, or he would do, you know, treat a speechwriter uh, that way." But the reality is, there's more of Richard Daly in you and me um, than we would probably like uh, than we would probably like to admit. And so, what you and I need is to be held by the conviction of God that He would use our lives at his bidding, not at our own, to make a difference, um, to make a difference in the world. Let me me, me give you the Amos perspective this way on the exile. In their world, when you read the Old Testament, and you've seen this, a lot of times God is referred to the God, uh, he's referred to as the God of Israel. Their world, you were the God of a country, you were the God of Land. So sometimes you read uh, the Bible and you read things like, Oh, you know, the gods of Moab or uh, the gods of Ammon, or you were the god of a piece of, of dirt, of a place." So an example of that. Remember uh, in the Old Testament when uh, Elisha heals um, uh, Naaman, right, the foreigner, the foreigner who had leprosy, and Elisha heals him of leprosy. You remember what? Um, what Naaman said that, uh, that he wanted, um, what is that, 2 Kings chapter 5. Yeah, here's what Naaman says. Um, he says, Please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. So it's this whole idea that God is the god of a piece of dirt. So Naaman says, well, I've got to take two mule loads of dirt back with me because I want to worship God. So I can only worship God on Jewish or Hebrew dirt. And so the idea was whenever your God and another God, whenever two countries got into a spat, the idea is that it was not just two countries that fought, but it was the gods of two countries um, that, that fought one another. And so even in the Old Testament, Naaman had this idea that I've got to be on certain soil to worship a certain God, and again, that chronological, that historical snobbery, we look at that and we say, well, that's a crazy. It's not really that crazy if you think about it. Because how many people in our culture think about, when you think about worship, what do they think? I got to be at church on Sunday. To, I got to be on God's soil in God's building because that's where you worship on Sunday. And then I go and live my life. It's, it's not... It's not all that different. But what was amazing to the Hebrews, when they were taken away in the exile, for the first time, they were taken, God's dirt was taken over. That was unthinkable to them. When we started this narrative journey on Sunday, we started with Abraham, right? Going to Canaan, to the promised land, the place that God said, this is mine. This is where, this is where my people who are going to be your seed are going to be. And they're going to number the, the stars of the heaven and the sands of the sea. And this promised land is your land. And when you end in the, uh, in the Old Testament, what happens is God's dirt is taken over. It's unthinkable to them. But God describes the exile differently, a different perspective. Uh, Daniel, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, whenever Daniel gives us this description, here's the way Daniel says it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. It's not that the God of Babylon was stronger than the God of Israel. That's not why they took over the dirt. It's that God gave the people into the hand. God gave up his dirt. Why would he do that? Why would God voluntarily lose? Well, because God's sovereign and he understands that by losing... The exile is not an end, but it's a new beginning. And so God's going to win what he really wants. God's willing to give up the dirt, right, if he gets the people's hearts. So God is willing to voluntarily lose, even though that seems unthinkable to the people. But to you and me, doesn't that sound familiar? It should. Because Jesus voluntarily gives up his dirt, if you will. Jesus voluntarily gives up his space in heaven and he comes down here to live in exile, exiled away from his father, exiled away from the praise of glory. He comes down here, if I can say it this way, he comes down here to the timeout planet. And he becomes a a man, a human, and he's subject to the things that you and I, right, are subject to in a lot of ways. And he doesn't do that because he has to. He voluntarily loses. He gets to the end of his life, and instead of fighting for himself, instead of calling down thousands of angels, rather, what Jesus does is he says, listen, Father, um, let this cup pass for me. Father, I don't wanna go to the cross tomorrow. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Now, why does he do that? He does that because the cross was God's secret weapon to grow the kingdom in your life. He does that so that you and I don't have to live for the approval of other people. He does that so that you and I can be free. He does that so that you and I don't have to be hypocrites. He does that so that you and I can be whole. So that we can live in fellowship with him. The secret weapon throughout the whole Old Testament is that everything sets up the gospel. Jesus Christ coming, giving his life for your sin and my sin so that God could bring us back together with him so that we could have life and life more abundantly. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the richness of your kindness and your blessing to us. That, God, certainly we see it in the life of great men like Abraham and Moses. And then, God, we even see it through ones that are even more obscure, ones like Amos. And, God, as we look through the pages of both the Old Testament and the New, over and over and over again we see your great love for us in the person of Christ given for our sins. God, I pray that you would help us to to live, to believe, to own, to appropriate, to preach the gospel to ourselves on a regular basis. To love you, to follow you all the days of our life.